0: Comics, movies, music, video games, technology,
1: Blu-ray, television. This is the HHW LOD Podcast Network.
2: The PKD Black Box is a proud member of the Comics Podcast Network. This is the PKD Black Box, episode 60. we this episode is brought to you by Princeless from Action Lab Entertainment. Action Lab Entertainment is proud to present Princeless, which tells the story of Adrian, one princess who's tired of waiting to be rescued. Join Adrian and her guardian dragon, Sparky, in an action adventure designed specifically for those who are tired of waiting to be rescued and who are ready to save themselves. Written by Jeremy Whitley with stunning art by M. Goodwin and featuring a backup story by Jeremy and D.E. Belton, Princeless is a swashbuckling miniseries that will appeal to to children of all ages. Princeless, who needs Prince Charming? Save yourself. Princeless is a comic book mini-series available for pre-order this month at dcbservice.com, tfall.com, or your local retailers, or various online retailers with an order code of August 110748. Additional information and release schedule can be found at actionlabcomics.com. Once again, that's actionlabcomics.com. Welcome back to the PKD Black Box. I'm your host... Sean Pryor. This week's episode officially kicks off Matinee Idols month. This episode we will have Matinee Idols co-host Matt Burden along with special guest Gabriel Hardman as the three of us discuss the Planet of the Apes film series. This is part one of a two-part episode. You will hear part two next week followed by after that the 90s action movie explosion where myself and Matt Burden talk about some of our favorite 90s action movies and then wrapped up with the State of the film industry summit between myself um, and also Matt Neato's co-host Alec Barry and Joey Alessio with special guest Julian Lytle. So we've got the whole month of August on lockdown wrapped up for you. Hope you really enjoy these episodes as we turn them out for the month of August because they are all great. (laughs) But then again, I just say it because I love the show. Anyway, to those that downloaded last week's episode, the B Movie Festathon, the kickoff, the, the like I like to call the warm up to the Matinee Autos month, thank you for downloading it. Thank you for listening to it. I've got a lot of great feedback about that episode, especially in regards to the comments um, about Ultimate Spider-Man and the bigoted comments made by Larry's com uh, Larry's comics on Twitter in regards to the new Ultimate Spider-Man. And I want to thank you for voicing your opinions to me and holding conversations with me about that as well. I do appreciate that, and I do as always appreciate anyone and everyone who listens to the podcast so but you know what let's go ahead and get to our feature presentation I'm on the line right now with the gentleman that you've heard on this podcast a couple of times before We discussed some 80s action movies and whatnot and, um, and had a good time doing it He is the, one of the co-hosts of the Matt Neato's podcast He is also the host of the Burden's World podcast He is one of the founders of Future Pro Wrestling, FPW, in the UK uh, All-around good dude uh, and a great friend Ladies and gentlemen, Mr. Matt Burden Matt, how you doing, sir?
0: i'm okay i feel like there should be someone else here i'm looking behind me that was such a good intro (laughs) thank you very much yeah i'm good man it's always good to talk to you Sean. yeah no one's ever done that list before that that was i feel like i need a business card now or something thanks man you You, can you be you need you could be my agent i love it hey
2: as good as long as you give me like 10 percent, i'm good baby (laughs)
0: <laughs> Look, I've offered you an FBW T-shirt. You, you, we haven't finished that transaction.
2: Oh yeah, yet. yes, we we do have to finish that <laughs> transaction <laughs> now. But we also have a very very special guest on uh, today's episode. Going by his bio on comicbookdb.com, uh, this gentleman has drawn for has drawn Hulk and Agents of Atlas for Marvel Comics, as well as Heathen Town for Image slash Shadowline. He is an accomplished motion picture illustrator whose credits include Spider Man Three. X2, X-Men United, Superman Returns, Tropic Thunder, and Inception. He also directed the prize-winning short film, Wrong Way Up, which premiered at the Seattle International Film Festival. Another talented individual, artistic, just his art is just like off the hook, if you do not buy his books, I will come to your house and slap you like Rick James. Ladies and gentlemen, the one, the only Gabriel Hardman.
1: Hey, Sean, thank you uh, for inviting me.
2: Oh, well, no, no, thank you for being on the show. This is for me. This has like been a long time coming. I've always wanted you to be a part of the PKD Black Box. And um, after uh, Mr. Burden had brought about um, about Planet of the Apes, it had been brought to my attention from Matt that you and um, that the both of you started talking, and then we just formed uh, this little podcast together to do so to talk about. Planet of the Apes. That's how it went down. Yeah. Yeah. Pretty much, pretty much. So yes, this is what we're doing for this uh, special episode. We are going to discuss the Planet of the Apes movies. We're going down the line. The good, the bad, the ugly, and the what the fuck. All all together in this recording. I'm a big Planet of the Apes fan. Gabriel is a big Planet of the Apes fan. Matt is a big Planet of the Apes fan. So sit back, relax, and just uh, have some fun as we go through these movies. Now, as far as these series of films go we were all introduced to these films in different ways Matt if you don't mind would you explain to the people how these films were introduced to you
0: we're gonna do this matinee idol style aren't we
2: yes we are (laughs) (laughs)
0: okay how are they introduced to me um didn't watch them on tv it was it was definitely when I was working at the video store so I probably didn't watch Planet of the Apes till I was Probably until I was about seventeen, so it's pretty far along, I, I suppose compared to compared to a lot. But I remember the the one thing I remember um, was that for whatever reason, the 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 kind of the classic image of the Statue of Liberty on the front, which is like the, one of the best you know end scenes ever, um, iconic and has just been parodied to hell. But I can remember I I kind of had this memory of seeing the video cover and have having seen that poster before. But during watching the movie, I didn't have the case anywhere near me and. Um, I had to kind of washed that image from my mind, and it came as this massive surprise to me at the end and I had this kind of mixed feeling when he's you know on his knees doing the doing the you did it um stuff i just remember thinking oh surely i should have remembered that but it was so nice it was so refreshing to have been surprised by that and i could never figure out it's such an iconic image i can't i could never figure out why they used to do that you know put that on the poster because it's almost like a big spoiler but then again it didn't spoil it for me so (laughs) i am completely contradicted (laughs) Um, but I, i think it was during a time when i wanted to really quickly get caught up on so much stuff that i missed out on or felt that i missed out on i think that's that's kind of something I've realized over the last couple of years and, uh, or especially doing Matt and the Idols when we, we do these histories and I have to kind of remember back. You know, I didn't have a VCR uh, or the family didn't have a VCR till pretty late on, probably until I was about 14, 15. So the kind of being the eight-year-old kid and watching Splash five times a day or Labyrinth or whatever it is didn't happen for me. It would happen at other people's houses. So I think when I was kind of 14, I just would devour whatever anyone had if someone had a video that was changing hands at school and someone was done with it and gave it back i didn't care what it was it would just be would it be all right if i borrowed that and i I just used to and that's how i watched china o'brien um (laughs) it's just how things like that happen you know king of kickboxers ended up in my vcr one day i don't know how that happened but but yeah and and especially like uh, films with lots of sequels i was into kind of I'm a continuity freak. I I would have to, of course, watch the first one first. Um, And horror movies were complete fodder for that. So, you know, all of the Friday the 13th stuff, Nightmare on Elm Street, Halloween, anything that had, like, more than three or four movies, I was kind of, wow, there's more of this stuff. And they're all only an hour and a half long. I can watch lots of them in a day. Um, And Planet of the Apes just kind of got sucked into that kind of vortex. And when I was working at the store... Uh, when I was working for Blockbuster, it was just so easy to kind of pick them up, and and I think I I probably watched all in one sitting. But no, I know I just I, I loved it. I loved the kind of kitschiness of it. I loved the makeups. I loved how crap some of the makeups became, and then they got better. And um, <laughs> there, there, there's almost there's a charm to it. it. I I'm never one of those. The sh- I'm I'm so not the shark looks fake guy. I'm the oh that's so charming. That nowadays that wouldn't happen, and I miss those days. So I loved everything about it it was fantastic
2: now what about you Gabriel how were you introduced to these films
0: I pretty sure that I
1: saw it on television when I was really young but um, the first one but I've also I know that I also saw bits and pieces of all of them on television and not without actually seeing the whole movies all the way through because things were on cable or whatever I mean it was sort of pre VCR for me you know after we got a VCR when I was you know 12 or whatever we uh, I, I I know that I read it all of them them and I, I watched all of them all the way through and rather than you know something like Star Wars where I, I was three when Star Wars came out I saw I, I I have the dimmest memory of seeing it in the theater but it's but it's something that you know is so iconic for me and I remember everything about when I saw the Star Wars movies and and had, I was obsessed with those for most of my life. Playing of the Apes was something where because they, the movies came out before I was born and it's something that that more that sort of trickled in and at a, at a Certain point, I had just seen all the movies like a million times, and uh, and at a certain point, I was obsessed with them, you know, as as opposed to the the kind of uh, galvanizing experience of something <laughs> like Star Wars. Yes. For me, I, I it's. Planet of the Apes falls into this area where um, like with a lot of things, I love to take things on their own terms. I mean, it was a movie, it was made at this certain point in time, there are things that are ridiculous. When I watch it, when Corinne and I watch the movies together, we laugh at those things yet still totally appreciate the seriousness of the you know, that the movie is trying to like the terms the movie is trying to operate on, you know? Like I love it I, I love to be able to like accept that things are goofy and ridiculous in something yeah. yes. and still, like, love them on their own terms. And and Planet of the Apes is perfect for that. Because there are, there, I mean, even, you know, the, still, I guess the best of the movies is, is still the first one, but there are just absolutely, uh, you know, there's some terrible jokes in it. There's some really, you know, there's some really terrible dated references, and all sorts of stuff in it that's not good but at the same time just the ambition of the movie and that it's taking this absolutely absurd concept, seriously, is, uh, is still a huge yeah. part of the appeal for me.
2: I'd have to agree with you on that, 100%, because there is a lot of, of silly stuff in these films, but once again, it goes back to, this is when they filmed it, so this is what we had at the time, so you, yeah. just, you, so you just deal with it, and you accept it. I know for me, uh, being introduced to these movies, I was introduced to them as a kid, and it was like around, say around 1980. I remember watching this Planet of the Apes movie on just like a local, local television channel, And it was actually what it was. It was two episodes of the TV show that they pieced Uh. together into a movie. So, and I was just, and and I'm serious. I really thought for a second it was Dukes of Hazard because you had like (laughs) these two guys trying to escape. (laughs) Then you you see, then you see apes on horses, and I'm like, wait a minute, what's this? What's this all about? And so I'm like, okay, this isn't Dukes of Hazard. So uh, what am I watching here? And come to find out, it was the Planet of the Apes movie.
1: Wouldn't it be awesome if there was a Dukes of Hazzard episode that went that way? (laughs)
0: Yes. (laughs) Just... That would be awesome get in the car. Why? There's an ape. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. you, you you would like
2: see the general lee like, you know, flying over like the council house. <laughs> that would be yeah, awesome. Yeah,
1: but
0: they would just accept it. Yes. You know.
1: They would just that's yeah. just
0: what happened that week. Yeah. You know? And they you'd never hear about it again. Oh, oh never ever. No. <laughs> it would land but, in that one tree house and explode. <laughs> yeah. Over and, and, and over. And jump and over. over the camera. <laughs>
1: yeah. Yeah. You know? Oh, yes. And, and,
2: and, and, midway, but, and midway through the leap, it would pause. And then, like, uh, who was the guy that did voiceovers for Dukes of Hazard? I always forget. And, oh, yeah. But, like, he would say, I wonder how the Duke boys are going to get out of this one. And then, and then it would start up again. A simian uh, situation. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> but but um, um, I remember um, watching that and then asking my parents more about the plan of the Apes. And they said, well, you know, these movies were out way before you were born they'll show up on TV sometime and when they come on, you know, we'll let you know. And that was during the time, you know, you had TV Guide, that was pretty much it. And so you just, you just waited. And one day, actually a couple years later, there was a marathon on local television where I saw the first three Planet of the Apes movies and I was completely blown away by the concept itself. And I just thought they were great. And from there I was hooked and I didn't see them again or really pay any attention to them again until say around the 90s. And it was around the 90s. I was older. I was paying more attention to what was going on, going on around me. And, and in the late 90s, I was able to check, check them out on DVD and then finally see the last two films um, when I was older. And then what sold me on the series as a whole was an AMC documentary on the planet oh of the, yeah on the planet yeah. of the apes that is what sold me and it was hosted by roddy mcdowell and then right I, yeah i've
0: seen that yeah. and then oh, that's I, the behind isn't it behind yes. the planet of the apes
2: behind the planet of the apes yes and i was just entrenched i said okay i'm i'm, I'm in i'm 100 I'm in i need to go watch all these again and i did And, and i really i can thank amc for that because after that they started a marathon and what was funny was that day i could either have watched a Smokey and the bandit seven movie marathon <laughs> <laughs> and that included all three movies plus the four television movies, which I didn't know existed. Oh, my God. I didn't know about that. Yeah, I didn't, I didn't know about that either. I'm like, oh, that's, that's bad. And, uh-huh. or, or I could watch all the Planet of the Apes movies. I said, we'll go, we'll opt with Apes. And it was a much better decision. So. I'm sure.
1: So, and you avoided that one where Jackie Gleason, uh, uh, you know, the, the third uh, um, smoking the bandit, where uh, you know without Burt Reynolds in it, where like Jack, I guess Jackie Gleason had played both parts at one point, and it was so confusing to the where he was the bandit and wow. the guy chasing him, and it was so confusing <laughs> that they reshot
0: half the movie. But anyway, I, <laughs> I mean that that's an editing of force that is that's fantastic. Oh, <laughs> that's just awful. Fine. But anyway, go ahead.
2: That's where my memory of how I started on Planet of the Apes was from. That and over at my grandmother's house, we had a couple of Planet of the Apes toys. You know, a couple of the figures, which I wish my relatives would have kept, because I'm sure they're probably worth a little bit of money right now. So speaking of which, let's go ahead and let's get to the uh, first movie itself, The Planet of the Apes, uh, released, if memory serves me right, in 1968 um, by 20th Century Fox. Uh, It was directed by Franklin J. Schaffner, who also directed Patton. And um, it was uh, based off the novel by Pierre Boulet, and yep. it was written by... The, now, the screenplay was written by Michael Wilson and Rod Serling, and I really feel that, like, Serling's screenwriting really shows and really, even in the silly parts of the film, really helps move the story along and just pulls you in, uh, yeah. al- along with uh, Schaffner's uh, directing. But... Um, it was filmed like a lot of it was filmed on the uh, on the 20th Century Fox Ranch in Malibu State uh, Malibu Creek State Park, and um, so that's I've wh- shot something there. Oh, really? Now, <laughs> yeah. Oh, awesome. <laughs> but uh, go ahead. But um, but no, like those are um, like the like the basics, like the basics of the film. It grossed, uh, I think, like around 32 million dollars in in the United States. It became like you know, it became a phenomenon across the country. Uh, across the world, uh, that is. It's the story of Commander Taylor, played by uh, Charlton Heston. Um, and according to the tagline for the film, uh, this is Commander Taylor, astronaut. He has landed in a world where apes are the ru- are, are the rulers and man the beast. He is now now he is caged, tortured, and risks mutilation because no human can remain on the planet of the apes. This is my That's favorite a long
0: of the tagline. Bunch. That is.
2: Oh yeah, but see, you could have you could have taglines like that back
0: then. <laughs> because the posters were bigger i suppose yeah oh yeah
1: i i, <laughs> I love the long the long descriptions on the posters for uh, yeah. from the, the 60s and you know 50s and 60s and stuff i especially in the 60s cuz I've, I've i was actually trying to buy a planet of the apes poster on uh win it on heritage auctions uh not that long ago and it was it had a huge block of text on it
0: is that the one with the like, the cage it's got like a wicker cage on it Yes. It's, yeah. Exactly. exactly. The, yeah, it's kind of like a Mad Max Three <laughs> thing. Yes, <laughs> without <laughs> Tina Turner. Without children. Head. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Without children. Without no, it took the hook halfway through.
2: But you know, but it amazes me how like this film was like marketed as far as posters and whatnot because I'm looking at the original Planet of the Apes poster, you know, with the cage and brilliant and,
0: orange, isn't it?
2: Yeah, and you you know, it has Charlton Heston's name, you know, you know, blazingly in the front but you see no you don't see Charlton Heston you yeah. see an image of um, I want to say was it was uh, a Dr. Yep. Um you see an image of Dr. Zayas, but then you just see this cage with like these shadow images of what looks to be humans and it's it's very um, I guess I want to say abstract and yeah, graphic uh, yeah, yeah. And, but um, but it it, sell, it sells the premise at least it sold the premise back then.
0: It's very of the time um, yeah. that kind of it's almost in silhouette, isn't it? It's kind of uh, kind of Wicker esque almost. Right. Um, but yeah, it, it's it, it it's one of those films where I think it, it became very quickly. I don't know whether it took 20th Century Fox off guard, but um, you know, I suppose same as um, with Star Wars and merchandising. Um, I don't know whether. Um, at that point they really would have thought is this going to be a lunchbox movie and is this something that we can you know market stuff to yeah to kids to kids with because it just wasn't that wasn't you know done uh, at yeah. that point um and it's kind of the later films where all of a sudden you know you get you get more you know masks and cut out bits on the back of cereal right. packets and stuff like but that but even
1: that i don't i don't think that they took marketing seriously i mean no. you know that that sort of merchandising seriously back then although um I mean, uh, kind of unlike Star Wars, uh, at the time, Apes was kind of considered an A picture for them. I mean, yeah. the, um, they, you know, Franklin Shafter was a. Uh, you know, was like a, a respected director, and uh, and you know, it had Charlton Heston, and and they're you know, and for the time, there there are seriously good production values in the first one. Yes. Um, they they do a ton of location work. There's you know, uh, all of the makeup stuff is really is pretty high quality, even on the extras and stuff. It's a it's it's a movie where they spent some money and they they went out and they and they shot it for real, presumably with the expectation that it would be an A picture. Although this is it's it's also um, this movie is is being made at a time in Hollywood where uh, where the studio system is falling apart. Mm, Fox yeah. was one of the hardest hit by this. They had no idea, you know, they were making, you know, they made, they were making like big, terrible, glossy musicals that no one wanted to see. And yes. It was just at the beginning of a time when the studios just didn't know what to make anymore that people would be excited about. You know, kind of like now, wow. you know. Um, and, you know, those sorts of times are, are always great because it, because it means that uh, they'll take a chance on something weird, you know, they'll take a chance on something different and certainly Planet of the Apes is that.
0: Mm, yeah. It's, it's quite funny, it's, it's um, I, we always, I suppose, kind of in previous episodes we always talk about bookends with movies and, and time where you can almost take Planet of the Apes and Star Wars and in between there there was some awesome stuff. Yeah. Because it, it almost kind of, started like Planet of the Apes comes around a time where it signals like Dr. Doolittle kind of falling down around right. Fox's ears and in between there that is that that amazing era of the director um yeah. an era of such creativity with easy rider and 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 all that kind of stuff it, it's it, it was just such a, a gorgeous time of cinema, and it's always kind of a time I come back to. And it's uh, it's quite funny that George Lucas suddenly became, <laughs> in that time, almost like this uh, this thing that kind of spurred it back up again to right. hang on a minute, we need more sequels. Right, but, um, but if uh,
1: but, yeah. but I mean,
0: one of the things about about the first
1: Planet of the Apes movie is that uh, Franklin Schaffner, people don't talk about him that much, but he was at the time people thought of him on a sort of Stanley Kubrick level. You know, I mean, they thought of him as. A sort of like a serious director. He had, he'd come out of directing live television and uh, live hour-long dramas on television in the uh, in the fifties, along with Rod Serling. Schaffner was sorry if I get too geeky about some of this stuff. No, oh, it's, uh, it's all
2: right because like he, he was uh, but, part of a uh, Playhouse ninety with uh, yeah exactly. With Serling. And
1: you part of Playhouse ninety. He you know and um, he was uh, he directed no oh, no I can't remember it, But there, there was another another show that he was like one of the main directors on. He directed the Twelve Angry Men uh, live television. Uh, episode and I've seen a lot of these. I'm kind of a nerd for this live television thing as well. It's a weird little like subset thing where a lot of really interesting, you know, a lot of interesting things were made. A lot of because the because of the weird circumstances of the time. But uh, so a lot of those directors who were schooled in that stuff ended up, you know, making, making feature films. And, you know, and he and John Frankenheimer and a lot of other, of those other guys were, you know, they were considered, you know, big directors. So him, so him, you know, it wasn't like he was some low level hired hand who was making a little kiddie sci-fi movie, you know, Mm -hmm. they were, they considered it a real movie.
0: And, and, Uh, oh, you about to say something, Matt? No, no, I I mean, I was, I was just, I, I haven't read the book. Have you read the book, Gabe? I have read the book. Actually. Okay. <laughs> um, I'm, I'm just actually trying to kind of envisage the pitch to um, 20th Century Fox without the book. You know, if you, if you if you kind of went in there without the book, I know kind of Zanuck is um, kind of known to take a, a bit of a fly on things, but but without yeah. the book, I can't. I couldn't see them picking it up.
1: Well, and it it was. I mean, the book is much, much more. The book is French. Not to say anything against the French, but it's. <laughs> It's really like, it's, it's just a straight-up allegory, you know? It's just, it's not, the pretense of it being a science fiction thing is incredibly slim, and it's basically just saying, hey, look, this is what we really are. It's, it's not a bad book, it's, it's, you know, it's a decent book, but it doesn't, it doesn't have the sort of built-in sci-fi aspect to it, the, the end-of-the-world stuff, the new civilization rising up sort of stuff. It's basically just, hey, on this other planet, apes are people and people are apes, you know, uh, with, in basically contemporary terms.
2: Now, like in with the novel, there, like you said, there are differences between the film and the novel itself. Like in the in the novel, the society is a little bit more complex. They have cars, they, they fly yeah. airplanes and things like that. And granted, for budgetary reasons, you know, we, we're pretty sure for budgetary reasons, that stuff got pulled off the table. Yeah,
1: but it's better because they took it out, I think. I, I, I'd agree. I, I think that, uh, that having... Having a setup where we don't know that this is supposed to be a future version of our Earth the whole time is a way better setup, and it it goes someplace. And the problem with th- those kind of just really direct allegories is, it's like, yeah, I get it. You you think you know you're really smart for you know for making this you know for pointing out that you know that we're just as savage as apes or whatever. But it doesn't go that far. You know, it doesn't. There's not a uh you know it's it's much more resonant when you get to that by the end of the movie after experiencing everything
2: As far as 20th Century Fox as a whole goes when it comes to this movie, the first Planet of the Apes movie, um, you know, we've mentioned Star Wars we, and we mentioned the Planet of the Apes series. 20th Century Fox, during that time from like, I, I want to say from 68 till, I'll say through like up till Empire Strikes Back and a little bit further. 20th Century Fox was the staple for science fiction. If you really think about it. they they embraced Planet of the Apes yes as time went along they lowered the budget so they basically were fulfilling like you know self-fulfilling a prophecy prophecy of we can't have better films but you know they still made money regardless and then you had Star Wars then you had Alien and you know then you had the other then you had Predator a a while longer which is more action than sci-fi itself but for the longest time they prided themselves on coming up with trying to bring out innovative science fiction films where that innovation comes through story where that innovation comes through technology or you know or or direction whatever whatever have you they were the studio for that and nowadays we really don't see that too much anymore yes there are the there are films yes because it's more director driven now than studio driven because as you said before a lot of studios don't know what they want and a perfect example like i just saw inception for the first time not you know for the first time not too long ago and that movie to me is amazing because it's one it's different two i've i've never seen anything like that before so i'm pulled in and i don't want to leave and it's the same way when i watched when i first watched planet of the apes you know i was pulled in i didn't want to leave and i just accepted that 1968 this was the industry standard and this was the best that they could do you know regardless of that just
0: an enthralling movie you know the the casting choices the production the the set uh, design everything from I mean I'm I'm I've got the documentary on silent now and I'm kind of looking at all the conceptual artwork for all of the sets and stuff and and it so reminds me of those conceptual um early Star Wars um stuff that they put you know he put together he had the guy you know draw up rather Quarry yeah that, yeah it's it's yeah. very very reminiscent of that and obviously I'm so pleased that you know 20th Century Fox did take it seriously because I I I, I can't get away from the idea of this guy walking into this room and going okay here's the idea um and being you know being taken seriously and and we're so better off for for them doing that rather than doing you know it sticky or never or you know it never being made um at all but the the casting choices in it absolutely add so much kind of gravitas to to everything from Heston to Kim Hunter right. to Well what, to, let's to talk what, about yeah. that. I
1: mean what what do you think? I mean because I mean for me I feel like Uh, like Roddy McDowell is like uh, is it's like one of Roddy McDowell's like great performances (sighs) weirdly you know like he's he's somebody who like like we were just watching because you know with the Netflix instant we were watching like uh you know an episode of the Buck Rogers uh, series from the eighties, <laughs> yes, which is like horrendous. But like, I mean, I remember it from being a kid. I mean, I watched it religiously. But Roddy McDowell is in it, and he's just wildly over the top, and he gives this ridiculous sort of performance. But underneath that makeup in that Apes movie, it's like his level of performance was perfect because it, you know, the the makeup kind of tamps the performance down a little bit, and you need that extra something to. To just express yourself through it yeah. and somehow he was able to like to do that in a, a really charismatic way you know which you know when you watch the second the beneath the planet of the apes and and another actor plays that part mm. it's so clear the good stuff that roddy mcdowell was doing yes. because the 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 second actor who plays that part is like he practically vanishes under there and you don't even you know he doesn't register at all at all oh, no, uh, i, I-
0: well I do you know I had this very conversation with Vern last week um we were talking about Roddy McDowell and and because I, I was, we obviously were talking about the fact that I'd been devouring the Apes movies and he said why and then I explained <laughs> and then we started to talk about Roddy McDowell and um he made exactly the same point um Gabe. it it's it is crazy the work that he did. He, he just said that for him Cornelius and of course then Caesar. That is that is Roddy McDowell's best work, and it's yeah. almost as if he can get more out of that makeup than anybody else. Yeah. Um, and yes, you need those over expressive facials and eyebrow movements and mouth movements, but he he owns that makeup. He knows it so well, and it just gets so much. I, I've got to say, as much as I love Cornelius, he he he's put, in the last two movies when he is Caesar. I. I adore Caesar. Oh, I, I
1: love Caesar. Yeah, yeah, I
0: gotta, I gotta agree there. No, get get Caesar mad, and I will listen to, I will listen to a monologue <laughs> I on repeat. I don't care whether they reshot it and you can't see his mouth moving. I love it, absolutely yeah. love it. But he, yeah, he he i don't know how much time he must have spent in that makeup but he really got to know it really really well and that is an iconic performance um
1: and kim hunter is great too though Mm -hmm. um i mean she and she's somebody who uh she actually comes out of live television as well uh theater and live tv she was in um uh rod serling's requiem for heavyweight with jack palance she's got the real sort of theater chops as well and i think she's she was really important to it um and well, really, all of the casting, all the apes casting, is great. And I mean, and then well, and then there's Charlton Heston. You know, I mean, like I, I really enjoy Charlton Heston in this movie.
2: <laughs> but he, he is on levels of like Shatner over the top. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. No, absolutely. Yeah.
0: absolutely. <laughs> there's mean, only so the, many times he can kind of look to the sky and starts start kind of. It's almost like the. It's almost like Claremont, isn't it? It's like you should, there's almost going to be a thought bubble above his head. There's only so many times he can. Go, I wonder if <laughs> he yeah, just. Just. Yeah, it's you know. very Shatner esque.
1: But yeah, he's he's crazy over the top. I mean, if a subtler actor had uh, had been in this movie, maybe we wouldn't be talking about it right now. I don't know. I mean, in general, I'd I you know I'd side with uh you know with it just being a, a, a goofy uh, not so good Charlton Heston performance because he's not really that great of an actor. But he you know but he does have, I guess he has like a charisma or something like Shatner. You know, I mean, they, there's a sort of charisma that that overwhelms the the sort of uh goofy over the top acting decisions or whatever i don't know
2: oh yeah and, and it shows with the number of quotes and sound bites people are yeah. like i've pulled off this first movie
1: yeah yeah not just
0: the ending the madhouse mm-hmm. thing or, uh, you <laughs> or know.
2: get your get your hands off get me damn dirty, 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 dirty. Yeah. yeah it's just
0: those three isn't it it's it's I think it's it's those three lines and then it's Kim hunters um you're just so damned ugly <laughs> um at the end and I gotta say as, as for me like um McDowell. Uh, the stuff he can do kind of with his mouth in that makeup, especially as Caesar is, is just awesome. Kim Hunter has some kind of the, she must have a, a million muscles in her nose because she will, she can wriggle her nose like nobody's, but she, it's, it's like the woman from Bewitched was, uh, you know, she, she would have, <laughs> would be embarrassed by Kim Hunter's performance in that makeup. She does that thing so, so often, but um, yeah, she's, she's awesome. She's great.
2: Also with the, with the first plan of the apes film, Because of like, you know, budgetary reasons, uh, you know, the director was able to do things pretty slick. Like if you notice, like when the when the spaceship crashes on the planet of the apes, instead of there being like this, like full size model, like flying down and finally crashing into the water and all this stuff. The director decides to replace that crash with a first person perspective and aerial nosedive shots. That is clever. Yeah, Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, and it's, it's, it's and it's, it's a good decision too. Really, mm-hmm. I mean, it's a good storytelling decision because it just stays with your characters. You know, my instinct always with uh, storytelling wise is, you know, whose point of view is this in, and uh, and how do you how do you get it across to the audience in a way where it's on a relatable scale? You know, because mm-hmm. if you if you just cut outside to a big ship exploding, that's um, you know they probably couldn't do it anyway. But the but. Uh, but if you did, now you can do it, and now often it's it's spectacle. You know, it it looks like a big thing, but you're not invested in it because you're not with the characters. You know, oh,
2: exactly. So. Yes, I agree, and that all and that all comes down to you know solid solid direction and, and and solid story, and 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 like with special effects, whether it be the makeups, the makeup, the costuming, and all that stuff. Um, one thing i miss out of a lot of movies nowadays and it's prevalent in your older films and they still do it every now and then in current films Matt painting
1: yeah and albert whitlock uh that that's if you uh like the the movie shorthand if like in the movie business uh, uh you call him Matt painting and albert whitlock cuz oh. he was he was a uh he was the main guy who did them he did he was like the master matte painter he did all the ones for hitchcock and uh literally like i mean matte paintings are sort of an antiquated thing i mean there are digital matte paintings still that uh that are um used you know that it's still a very precise sort of art but yeah so especially when i was starting out in movies they would still people would still refer to them as albert whitlocks (laughs)
2: I also think that with this uh, first Planet of the Apes movie, it's the type of thing where before Planet of the Apes came out, and I'm trying to remember in, in my head if some of the actors that's, that's, that eventually signed on to the film to do the movie, they had their doubts because one, it was science fiction, and for a lot of people in the 60s, when you thought of science fiction, you thought of those campy, you know, really, really campy, very over-the-top, extremely silly films that would either break even or just, would just lose money instantly. They weren't, you know, they weren't budgeted high. They were just there. And so what happens is you have Planet of the Apes, a movie that transcends all that and then takes science fiction to a new level of a cinematography. Not only is it just a, a, a Saturday afternoon film that kids can go see, it's a film that everybody can go see. And anytime it's on, it you know people will go see it. It's not just a, hey, it's a Saturday. Let's go to the movies. Let's see what's playing. It's no, it's I got to go see Planet of the Apes. It becomes an event. And that's what I think this movie did to help the science fiction genre as a whole, as opposed to previous science fiction of the past.
1: Yeah. And one of the other things about it, it's got great photography. And that's something that, like when I when I saw it uh, um, as a kid on television, Pan and Scan, it looked kind of like a grimy movie. It didn't look like a great looking movie because there are these old... 16-millimeter prints or whatever they're showing on television that are, uh, uh, you know, I mean, it's a scope movie. It's a 235 movie. So, you know, so when showing it on television, back when televisions were 133, when they were square, Mm -hmm. oh, you're cropping the sides off and you're panning across it and all this awful-looking stuff. Then seeing it, seeing it, finally seeing it on DVD, where you're seeing it widescreen, it's like, oh, my God, this actually is kind of a good-looking movie, you know? I mean, it's something that, like, Current generations of uh, like younger you know movie nerds will never uh, you know never know about you know having seen a movie you know cropped on television uh, and then finally getting to see it widescreen and going oh my god this is what, the way they actually intended it it looks great but the, I mean that's the experience I had with Planet of the Apes that it that it's kind of like a much bigger, cooler-looking movie when you can see it widescreen and see it, you know, the way it was intended. That and the the Jerry Goldsmith score is also something that, uh, you know, that kind of elevates it above being a cheapo sci-fi programmer, because that score is, you know, it's like a really individual score, and people still rip off stuff from it. it. And it's not like a science fiction score, you know? There's not a theremin in it. There's not, you know, it doesn't have uh, it doesn't have the sort of trappings of that it's more like a score for like an Akira Kurosawa movie or something it uh you know I mean I think those those sort of production elements like elevated the you know the style of the movie a lot
0: it's, it, the scores vary of the time i mean it's it's kind of lots of different drums and lots of different things being you know hit and it doesn't sound like a Kubrick. Sort of score, but whenever kind of I hear the score, I always think of those kinds of movies for for whatever reason because it just is reminiscent of a of a time in cinema that I like. But it, it kind yeah, of well, there's also that
1: me. percussive stuff in The Shining and things like that that, cool, uh, that yeah. really reminiscent of it. yeah,
0: sure. No, it, it, I suppose it, it's the same with with the majority of of kind of classic, not necessarily sci-fi stuff. I suppose monster stuff. You know, Star Wars without the score. Was awful. Jaws without the score, what would it be like? You know, this, yeah. you, it, they, if you've got that good score, kind of pounding through it, it just adds, it adds so much. But um, going back to the actors, do you know, the, you know, you got um, Taylor and his two friends, and you've the the one that got like lobotomized with the very Sean Connery beard, yeah. Um, who, I, I thought, I, I really wanted him to survive longer because he was kind he for me, I, I as a when I watched it. Um, you know, first time round, I was almost hoping that he would be the protagonist. I wanted him to kind of survive a bit longer. Because he wasn't an uh, asshole. Yeah, he wasn't. He, 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 it was like, who made you leader? I'm louder than you. You know, <laughs> that kind of thing. But um, yeah, he disappeared far too quickly. But never mind.
2: This week's episode is also brought to you by Snowed In from Action Lab Entertainment, who advises you not to open up your doors this Halloween. Action Lab Entertainment brings you the frightening and chill tale of Snowed In. A relaxing cabin vacation for four close friends takes a turn for the worse during a severe blizzard. A frantic stranger arrives to warn them that it is coming for them. It wants them dead. But what is it? And how far will these four individuals go to protect themselves? Snowden is a self-contained 40-page one-shot written by Sean Gabbard with beautifully rendered and atmospheric artwork by Rick Lundine. Snowden is available for pre-order this month at Discount Comic Book Service, T-Fall, various online retailers, and your local comic book store with an order code of AUGUST-110749 with an October release. Pre-order your copy today. And additional information and release schedule can be found at actionlabcomics.com. Because we haven't mentioned Linda Harrison yet. Now, granted, she doesn't really have to do much in the first film except. Yeah.
0: She was also the girlfriend of the producer. Yes. (laughs) Funny that, how she crops up so many times. Yeah.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Well, I tell you what, let's go ahead and move on to the sequel and um and a film that honestly uh, because of uh, because of my best friend, really truly made me appreciate this franchise as a whole, beneath the Planet of the Apes, uh, released in nineteen seventy now, in this film, we do have uh, Charlton Heston, but he's barely in the film because what happens is is that a second astronaut played by James Franciscus uh, comes looking for uh, astronaut Taylor only to find out that um astronaut taylor has been captured by intelligent telepathic human mutants who live underground and worship an unused atomic bomb that could destroy the planet the the planet as a whole so yeah yeah which happens yeah (laughs) of course yes (laughs) (laughs) but um but this film i think i think the main reason why i enjoyed it so much now granted there are definitely a lot of problems with this movie and by problems i mean the budget was cut back um, yeah. You know, the budget was cut back, so all the ape costuming isn't as intricate and yeah. well put together. And you, and you can see it in a lot of shots, especially nowadays with you know with high definition technology and all this other stuff. You can look and like the main like the main actors who have the most screen time, their masks look great. But if you go to like a crowd shot, I mean, literally, it's just somebody just putting on a quick cheap mask. Boom, done. The
0: oh, end. I think oh, no, the, I mean, oh, it's the worst. I think it's the worst. Um, I think the, the rest of them, the rest of the movies, learnt. How to? I think you know the budget's got even smaller um, after this one, but I think they learned how to shield a lot of that stuff far better after yeah. the second film. I mean, the the biggest and and most garish the shot that kind of shows how really bad it is in, in the movie is the, is the council shot where they yes. they kind of all sat around and there's apes on kind of sat on those benches and it does look like somebody just went to a fancy dress shop and, and just yeah. put it on and didn't even con, you know didn't even connect it to to kind of their body it's almost flailing around but the other movies even though like i said the you know the budget gets worse i think they do learn from it and you don't see that as much even in you know even in the fourth film where you've got no, right. you got lots of crowd shots and it's mostly dark and you you don't well i think quite it's
1: yeah, I mean, I think that that was also shot by a much more competent director,
0: uh, the fourth film. Um, sure. But, you know, the
1: ends. Um, but yeah, that scene that you're talking about where they're, like, in the council thing, I mean, there are singles of, uh, there are close-ups of um, Kim Hunter's character and uh, and stuff where you can just see the the terrible pullover masks that the extras are wearing right next to her. Like, they're practically featured. And it's <laughs> it's like, God, who what were they thinking? I mean, I, I just... I don't. I don't know. I mean, for me, this movie. Sorry to go around the the horn here and talk about the movie in particular. Oh no! That's fine. You know, go, no go ahead. Go ahead. I, for me, this this is kind of my least favorite of the movies. Kind of weirdly. I mean, like I. I just i've never quite connected to it i mean i know i saw it a lot of times or at least parts of it a lot of times on tv when i was a kid i for whatever reason it just the thing with the mutants and the and all that stuff never quite connected with me and i would have rather just like been back there with the apes and had some you know uh you know some further adventure with them and, and the way that it I, I could never quite understand the way that the whole thing connected up right but uh you know, so like of of the films, this is probably my least favorite, I guess.
2: Well, um, I, I, and I think that shows because a lot of it shows for three reasons. Um, y- your story writers are different than your first film. You know, with a, with Ser- with a Serling and Wilson. You know they're able to bring together a very cohesive story. This film, it's Paul Paul Dan or Paul Dean and Mort Abrams. Dean, I think, yeah. oh Dean, I'm sorry, thank you. Uh, Paul Dean and Mort Abrams. Plus, you have a different director. You have uh, Ted Post instead of Schaffner. I mean, nothing against Ted Post. I mean, the man directed Hang 'em High. So yeah. I, it's, it, but it's it's it's
1: one of those. But things. But I think he's more of a sort of programmer journeyman director okay. than uh, Schaffner
2: is. For me, I think I I enjoy it. Not like the whole mutants thing wasn't really my thing either, but I think what I enjoyed about it was the performances of uh, James Gregory as General Ursus. Like, to me,
1: Uh you know, know,
2: Ursus was hardcore. That I enjoyed because he was just ruthless. Dr. Zayas and Kim Hunt playing Zero was still cool. Even as a kid in my mind, I'm wondering... Why do you go send an astronaut? Why? Why do? Why would the government send a rescue team after an astronaut? You know, whose mission basically <laughs> involves hurtling hundred, hundred, hundreds of years through time. I, I, yeah. That I did not get. That was the one thing I didn't get as a kid, and even as an adult. But I'm like, you know what? It's a movie. Just let it go. It's okay. Yeah. You've read comic books that are dumber than that. So just let it go. It's well, okay. The,
1: but the lucky, the lucky coincidence was that he's just like a shorter Charlton Heston. You know, yeah, exactly. a little kid. Kids can't really tell the
0: difference. There you go. Yeah. There, there you go. You you had the, same, absolutely- the same pants and you had the same kind of getup. But what I, uh, what I, uh, immediately I, I took a dislike to. But what's the, what's the name of the main character in, in two? I can never remember. His name
2: is uh, John Brent.
0: Brent. J- the, the set. The second that he sets eyes on Nova, he he's he's a very he's a very touchy feely guy. He grabs those he grabs those dog tags from around her neck and keeps pointing at them. He's literally shaking the woman, and he does it throughout the entire movie. He he's that guy in the office that would be let go because he's too familiar. He <laughs> yeah, just, it's just inappropriate. Just, yeah. yeah, just get off. I can't talk, <laughs> but I could kick you in the face from my horse. It, yeah. it, it he, just, he just, right from the get go. It was, Where is Taylor? Where is Taylor? I can't talk to you. It doesn't matter how loud you speak. Please let go. You've bruised my arm. I don't. Di- I <laughs> did. No, I didn't. Didn't take to him at all. And and the second that him and Taylor meet, uh, as much as I hate to to now review movies by how distracted I am in them, we are in a. We're now in a time of lots of gadgets and iPods touches and ipads and stuff and i try very hard to just watch a movie all the way through but i guarantee you planet of the apes 2 as soon as they end up being captured after the wall of fire i'm kind of reaching for the ipod possibly i might just check an email um but you know it, it, as soon as the mind control kicks in and they're fighting in that very spiky cage yes. it, it, it yeah it's lost me I, this is my definitely it's my least favorite wow. um, Definitely. Well, we also
2: have to take into consideration that this is during a period of time in the movie industry where an actor, I guess I don't know if an actor was looked down upon for doing a sequel, but sequels were not a very uh, popular thing for a popular oh, actor yeah. to do. It, you yeah. know, sequels were bad, You know, sequ- yeah. which is really strange because nowadays sequels are the norm. It's like we can, green light, we can green light a sequel before we can green light a film that has a great concept and could make a ton of money. But you know, the, uh, sequels were frowned upon. So it was difficult. Well, they just
1: didn't think they could make money. I mean, they just thought that they would be that people would just be like, "Oh well, I saw that before. I, I'm not really sure I want to go see it again," you yeah. know, and uh, you know, and so they would just spend a lot less money on them.
2: You know, they were able to bring Heston back, but the only way he would come back is if he could, you know, film for a couple of days. But they'd have to kill his character. And that was the whole thing about the film. As a child, and even as an adult, that gets me because you don't really see this in a lot of in a lot of you know conventional cinema a bleak ending
1: it is yeah it couldn't be any bleaker it's (laughs) it's like it's
0: amazing (laughs) the the ending of this movie well let's wait for the next film my god it's it's well that's true it's like transformers the animated movie kids going oh my god
1: but it's it is you know i mean you know they blow up the world not only did they blow up the world charlton hesson blows up the world yes and then and you only know because like there's a little voice over at the end
2: yeah <laughs> like, oh, oh yeah and, and like and to this day that like i'm like whoa and well i think the thing that really got me watching this like for the first time as a kid i'm watching this on regular tv mind you this isn't cable it's just regular tv yeah and james franciscus takes a header on screen yeah, yeah. And like when I saw that like I literally screamed. And you you know, and my mom's like, "What's wrong?" I'm like, "They just shot astronaut Brent in the head. He's not coming back. Is is he?" You <laughs> know, and then Heston gets shot and uh Nova gets shot. I'm like, "Wait a minute. This isn't happening. This doesn't happen in movies. Somebody tell me, something's wrong here. This is not happening in movies." And then when the Earth blows up, I'm like, how are they able to make more movies after this? <laughs> right.
0: Well, that right. was the whole thing. I can
1: was... appreciate that. That's that's kind of cool though that it would be a thing where you know you just end up seeing this movie that that goes this direction that you know that that you're totally unprepared for as a kid. I don't. I think I never saw the movie in that kind of circumstance. I mean, I knew I saw bits of it when I was a kid, but I think I was a little older, like a teenager, by the time I actually watched all of them all the way through. Mm-hmm. And by that time, I was probably more cynical. And,
2: you know. and see, and when I watched it as a kid, I had only watched the second. Second like half of the film. I didn't watch the first oh. half of the film, oh. you know. So now I'm watching. I'm like, okay, why? Why does Charlton Heston have a twin? Why is he? You know, I, I didn't. <laughs> uh, you know, I didn't understand. And then when I see these people die, I'm just like, there's something wrong here. Movies don't work this way, you know. And, and, and you know, as a kid, that's just you know the general thinking. But yeah, it was just
1: bizarre. And when he gets when uh, James Franciscus gets shot at the end, it's brutal. I mean, it's yeah. really violent. I mean, when uh, not long ago, uh, Karina and I uh, uh, we got the. um uh, the Blu-ray box set. My wife and I were watching it, and like when we're watching that one, at the end, it's like he gets yeah, he gets shot in the head, full frontal sort of shot in the head, uh, and it's like Karina was like, oh yeah, for kids. <laughs> 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 it's I mean, it's really violent.
0: It um, really is. I mean, it's a it's a full on squib across the back wall, uh, and then yeah. a slide, and then this kind of he's still got his eyes open, which is really yeah, demented. It's shot, like, it's, yeah, it's not nice.
1: But, but anyway, yeah, it is. I mean, it does get points for being unrelentingly bleak. Basically, if you look at the big thematic arc to this movie, it, it, to these two movies, it's that in the beginning, Charlton Heston thought that there was uh, there was uh, no reason for humans to uh, to exist. They're violent and horrible, and he'd just as well be rid of them. And in the end. Of, of the second movie he pays that off by uh, destroying the world you know and proving that yes he was right that humans are totally worthless or that but they're it was off. his
0: idea wasn't it, it, um, it they, they were str- they were sort of struggling for for an ending and, and it, it he, he wanted it to be kind of a sequel killer um, right. And and that was his thing. He wanted to come up with. Well, how about if I push the plunger and I never have to come back here again? I guess he never came back. No, 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 no. He never did. No. no, he
2: never did. And and even though I felt that the mutants were kind of were kind of jukey, you know, in concept, I did like the underground of what was once New York and you know, like how they use the yeah. matte paintings and stuff like that, that, I, that I loved. I thought that was really, really cool, but I, I wasn't a fan of the mutants either. They freaked me out, but I just, I just was not a big fan.
1: Yeah. And as an adult, I'm just like, what is, wait, what, what's the point of this? And then, yeah. I mean, in the bom- bomb, worshiping is so heavy handed. It's, <laughs> I <know>. it almost <laughs> you know. has testicles, doesn't it? It, yes, it has literally <laughs> rises up several times. We get it. Yeah I know it's you, we get it. <laughs> yeah.
2: And originally in the sequel they were going to uh show like a hybrid like mutant like Ape Child or something like that. And it, I guess they opted to not do that. And so I remember watching in the AMC documentary, they had some test footage of that. Looks it was great. Yeah, it actually did look kind of cool, but they just, I guess they felt it didn't fit in the story or, you know, maybe it wouldn't play well in the South, you know, bestiality and all. So uh, <laughs> I don't know, but it, it didn't happen. It just that bleak ending was what really got me more than anything else. And maybe it's because of how I watched it as a kid. And you're in a situation where, when you're watching it on standard television, and because they didn't really cuss in these films, there aren't any. There really isn't a lot being cut out. And then when it just goes to commercial, it goes to com- commercial, and you're held there, and you know you have to wait and wait. You got to wait for that. You know you got to wait for it to come back. And then it's back on. You're ready. You're back into it. You're ready to go. You know because it's not like that nowadays. Now we control what we watch Mm -hmm. but back then it wasn't like that and I think that played into how much we were pulled into a film or not so that that definitely to me that played a lot into
0: it let's move on to brighter times yes yes
2: I I, I think we shall because (laughs) now that image of Francisca's taking a header on screen is like mentally burned (laughs) into my head Um, now this was supposed to kill the franchise it didn't Even though they spent less money on the the movie, it still made, back then, it made a good amount of money, so the studio wanted yet another film. Which leads us to Escape from the Planet of the Apes in 1971, directed by Don Taylor. Now, in this uh, third film, that's when Cornelius and Zira basically, supposedly, you know, escape the Planet of the Apes before it exploded and end up with another uh, ape, Milo end up back in time, in in regular times, and so now they are the outcast as opposed to the other way around. That's like my abridged version of of the story, so if if anybody else wants to elaborate on that, please feel free.
1: Yeah, how did they, when did they fix this spaceship and when the world was ending and like, (laughs) what? (laughs) But that said, I actually kind of like this movie. And And for, you know, in a weird way, it's like it starts out as the silliest, most embarrassing thing you can imagine mm-hmm. and turns into a tragedy. And I find myself each time I've watched it, I find myself going really like they're you know, she's going and dressing up in these ridiculous 60s sort of, you know, uh, outfits. And they're they're at the L.A. Zoo and they all this silly stuff. And that actually that that yet every time at the end i'm really sad when they uh, when they get all yeah. get shot down so I, I, th- I think it's successful in
2: some way i agree i remember watching it when i watched it during the amc marathon i'm like okay this is really silly i'm like this is really coming off like of you know a very bad comedy but then yeah. but then i watch it again and i think when it when it pull, when it gets me is when they're like being questioned and you yeah. um, where, Corn- where Cornelius and Kira are being questioned, and then you really start to see their relationship, and you see it in a way that was different than in the first two movies. In the first two movies, yeah, you can kind of tell that you know that you know they're close to each other, but you really don't get that relationship relationship vibe until this third movie.
1: Yeah, yeah, and, yeah,
2: and, definite, and that's what sells. There's a
0: definite it. dynamic between them. There's a there's a very clear kind of husband and wife who like each other as opposed to the other way around going on there the, the third film always um, seems to me kind of like start like it's like star trek for the voyage home but with monkeys and not whales you know <laughs> it's um, um... they're kind of out of time but then the apes movie the second you're right as soon as they start questioning them and giving her Grape Juice Plus which I, which if anyone if, if David if you're listening um, if you ever do Grape Juice Plus for a drink roll call on 11 o'clock comics I would be so very <laughs> happy that would be gorgeous <laughs> um, but it, it takes that sudden turn and, and that I think that the third the third film is, is kind of that was where I really kind of grabbed a hold of Roddy McDowell as you're doing something amazing here you know I thought you were good in the first the first one but in the third one as soon as he plays that protective husband role so well, yes. um, yeah, and the, and the second you the, the the second you know that. That shot rings out, and you get that kind of that roar from him at the end. It's just kind of I I, I, I can't just stop at number three. I have to put pop number four in immediately um, to get to get my fix of of angry McDowell in uh, yeah <laughs> in, in, in ape makeup because that that that's why I, you know I I dig Caesar so much because he's just so so captivating as him. But three's um I I was watching three um, last week. My wife was was kind of sat with me on the sofa, and she was um she's a she works in a school she was grading some papers and uh, she kept kind of looking up from from what she was doing every now and again and would say and And she said is this turning sad this is turning sad <laughs> is, is, that, is that right and I said I said you're not wrong and she said if it's turning sad I don't want to know I don't want to be in the room if this is gonna because she's she's like that she, you know she doesn't want something to affect her adversely if she's if she's not invested in the story it's cuz I don't want to walk into a room and see someone slaughtering somebody's monkey child but uh, wow. and, and it was I, I, <laughs> I kind of said that's kind of going to happen soon and she 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 went out of the room and i watched you know like the last 45 <laughs> minutes on my own but it, yeah it goes south very quickly but i love it and it and again it i like sequels that you you kind of you feel that they're finding their feet with the first few Getting used to being a sequel, and then you get a a piece of storyline that then becomes a constant for the rest of it. Um, And as much as the first two have got, yes, of course, it's the same location, and they've got Taylor in common. The third film takes a real, there's a real, um, what's the word? There's a you know a story mechanism there and and runs with it. So then you know the next three are so connected, it's untrue. Yeah, I, I love the third film. It's great.
2: Now, I uh, think a couple of things that also that I enjoy about the third film is that it has Eric Braden, A.K.A. Victor Newman. He plays uh, Doctor Otto uh, uh, Haslin or Hasline. and mm. you know that's that's the bad guy in the film, uh, essentially. Right. I mean, that, that's that's the bad guy, and I've you know and I've never seen him outside of soap operas. So to see him in this film, this 1971 film, kind of took me you know took me back for a second. I'm like, okay, so you actually did do something besides soap opera so let me see how, how you play it off okay good job job well done okay cool and you know we also get the uh, cameo from uh, Ricardo Montalban as Armando yep um, you know who ends up you know who shows up with uh, with with uh, Caesar in, um, in was it Conquest?
1: Yes okay. the next one Thank yeah. you. Yeah, the next.
2: so so yeah so those things were, were, were really cool for me and I think the thing that I remember most and this is once again from that AMC documentary was that uh, Sal Minio who played Milo had a right. very difficult time being in the makeup and he t- huh. and he didn't like it at all so that's why Milo gets killed off so quickly in the film because he just couldn't do it
1: no it's just it's interesting that i mean it it, it seems like you know Salminio was given. You know he's sort of a method actor guy, and he, you know, he gave. You know he was in Rebel Without a Cause, and he gave, you know, really, you know, a lot of really big performances and stuff. And somehow he couldn't quite pull off. You know, pull it off the way that you know the other two actors could. Mm-hmm. Maybe it was just because he hated it so much. I don't know.
2: But I mean, he wasn't bad in it. it oh, fine. oh no, he wasn't bad in it at all. Uh, he, you know, I thought he was. I thought he was fine. Actually, I was kind of like shocked that like his character died when I watched when I watched the film. I was surprised, and then when you when you when you see the documentary, then you're just like, oh, okay, that's why. But
1: yeah, it's pretty effective though in the movie.
2: I think this is also the beginning of where, and, and you see this. This is prevalent in television now. It's prevalent in a lot in a lot of films now. Um, when it comes to science fiction, this is a film that is science fiction, but also at the same time, it is removed from science fiction. And, and by that, I mean, it has, it, has some, it has a sci-fi element, that being the apes, uh, you know, Cornelius and Zira. But all the other sci-fi elements are pretty much removed from the film. But the film itself still is able to stand on its own. And you see that a lot with, like, say, for instance, perfect example was heroes. Heroes, there were no costumes. You know, no, there were people with superpowers, no costumes. Because for some reason, you can't have costumes, which I, I just don't understand. You know, in some things, I, un- I understand. They don't sell well and some things may, some things may not. But to me, this was like the beginning of, for me, watching a science fiction film that was science fiction but was also at the same time not science fiction. There was more commentary behind it than the science fiction itself. And that concludes this week's PKD Black Box. The PKD Black Box is a proud member of the HHWLOD Podcast Network and is available at hhwlod.com and is also available via iTunes. And you can still go to pkdmedia.com to get our podcast, check out our forum, and read comics like Mercury and the Murder, Agents of Cult, and Luke Foster's The Gang from the Store for free. If you're on iTunes or our forum board, feel free to leave us a comment, or you can email us at blackbox at pkdmedia.com. Thanks again for listening. Until then, dream big and hustle hard.
0: it's very serious Roddy mcDowell's just been stung by a tiger scorpion, and uh now they're gonna have to get on a horse which is forbidden and ride and they might get caught ah oh, the drama it's <laughs> it's good, it's good. Oh, man, i haven't watched these in years it is exactly eight thirty yeah yeah so yeah they uh, they they were are, um, as we say, completely knackered. So yeah. they've gone they've gone off to sleep. And so I'm running the Planet of the Apes original TV show with the sound down while we talk. <laughs> <about it. laughs> so. Or
2: as I like to call it, the Dukes of Hazard in the Planet of the Apes.
0: Yeah. I haven't I haven't gone
1: back and watched that. I mean I've I've seen them I think I rented the DVDs like a few years ago and saw <laughs> yeah. some of them, but that like that my my you know, that's like my one,
0: you know, empty spot for Planet of the Apes. Really? The, the Tim Burton thing isn't an empty spot for the Planet of the Apes? Um, well,
1: I mean, I saw it, you know. Unfortunately, <laughs> <laughs> you know, uh, yeah, uh, no, That spot is filled with hate. Yes. Oh, <laughs> you
2: too, huh? Yeah. <laughs>
0: You you do di- I mean Sean you usually hit record the second you make the call anyway don't you
2: Oh yeah yeah that's why We're, that's why a lot of episodes <laughs> have a actual podcast and then you have what I like to call the after party
0: right. Yes right. Um, which is every conversation you've ever had with Donnie. Pretty much <laughs> Yeah <laughs> but-
1: Oh sorry can I correct? Oh should
2: yeah. I not- Oh you can cuss on the PKD black box you can cuss it's it's allowed Yes Yes
1: I don't know why everyone asks that on podcasts. I mean, it's like obviously it's it's not like the FCC is not going to find you, but I just want <laughs> no. I don't I want to be courteous, you know, and not
0: you know. Oh no, no one ever edits it out either. No one ever edits out the guest asking permission, asking it's like if a, <laughs> exactly. yeah, it's like a right passage. You exactly.